You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hey, it's Motley Fool Money co-host Dylan Lewis here. If you're listening to us, it's because you love following the stock market and learning about business stories. If you're looking to keep learning and unlock your potential, then you should check out the Think Fast, Talk Smart podcast produced by our friends over at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Think Fast, Talk Smart is the Webby Award-winning Best Business Podcast that's received nearly 43 million downloads and is the number one career podcast in 95-plus countries, so you know it's worth your time. Each week, host and Stanford lecturer Matt Abraham sits down with experts to discuss the best tips to hone and develop your communication skills, from making small talk that leaves a big impression, to keeping your nerves in check while speaking, to being more persuasive. Whether you're working on your elevator pitch or planning an important meeting, Strong communication skills are important in business and life in general. That's why you'll hear from pros like neuroscientist Andrew Huberman on how to manage speaking anxiety, as well as speechwriter, best-selling author, and friend of the fool Dan Pink on how to take risks in your communication, and psychologist Kelly McGonigal on how to harness nervous energy to fuel powerful presentations. All that and so much more available on the Think Fast, Talk Smart podcast. So what are you waiting for? Listen every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. Hey everyone, I'm Jean Chatsky. Thank you so much for joining us today on Her Money as we all say goodbye to 2021 and hello to 2022. I'm so happy you have all been part of our Her Money listener family this past year and we can't wait to start this next chapter with all of you by our side. And I do have to say, despite all that's going on in the world, I am feeling hopeful for this new year. I hope that you are as well. In a new annual resolution study, our sponsor Fidelity found that 62% of Americans are feeling optimistic about the year ahead. And the majority of us, 68%, are considering a financial resolution. And so this got us wondering, what are your resolutions? What are you hoping to change or improve as we head into this new year? And how can we help you get there? We immediately turn to our private Her Money Facebook group, which, by the way, you should all be in by now, but if you're not, you just go on Facebook, you ask us to join, you answer a few questions, we let you in, and you get to be part of this amazing conversation, as well as to our Her Money Mailbag to put together a special show focused on all of your unique questions and concerns as we move into 2022. For example, maybe it's time you bulked up your emergency fund. Or maybe, like 47% of people reflected in the Fidelity study, you're looking for a new job. Or maybe you're looking to increase your retirement contributions like we know 62% of people are doing now. And by the way, while New Year's resolutions are 
great. The truth is we want our good financial habits to become permanent part of our lives, not just well-intentioned flashes in the pan that we forget about come February or March. So how do we take a little bit more of a thoughtful approach to our finances in this new year and make 2022 the year we reach all of our goals. Here to help me tackle those questions and so many more is Meredith Stoddard, Vice President of Life Events Planning at Fidelity Investments. You may remember her from her recent episode with us, Caregivers Are Overwhelmed, Here's How to Start Healing. That was episode number 291. In her role, Meredith's focus is helping people through the most important events in their lives, including things like losing a job, welcoming a new baby, caring for a loved one, or going through a divorce. Meredith joined Fidelity in 2004. She graduated from BU, and she is pursuing a graduate degree in sustainability at Harvard Extension. Hey, Meredith, welcome. Thanks for being back with us so soon. I'm thrilled to be back. Thanks for having me. Of course. Let's dive in, okay? Yeah. Our first question comes to us from Lori, and she writes, Hey, Jean, I am a huge fan of the show. Love the bonus mailbag episodes, so keep them coming. First question, Jean, you've mentioned on the podcast how you saved for a family trip to Hawaii. Can you tell me how and where you saved Exactly. I have a similar goal for eight years from now, and I want to start saving in earnest in the new year. Since I have a longer time horizon, would a money market account be a good option? Let me answer that, and then I'll read the second part of the question. So I went old school. I saved in a bank account, Lori. I just opened basically a separate savings account. It was a savings account with a higher rate of interest that my bank was offering as long as you met a minimum balance. And I think that balance was $10,000 to get it started. So I sort of seeded the savings and then I just kept adding to it along the way. And by the way, I took, how many people did we go to Hawaii with? We took all the kids, we took some of their partners, we took my mom and Bob, So we were like a good dozen people in Hawaii. It was a pretty pricey trip, but I just set up an automatic deposit to that savings account every single month, and I did it over about five years. So I took what I thought the cost of the trip was going to be. I knew that we'd be using miles for some of the tickets, so I factored that in, and then I divided it by the number of months I had, figured out if I could afford to make that size of a monthly transfer, and I just let it roll. But I think a money market account would be a fine option. I think a high-yield savings account would be a fine option. You know, we are expecting to see a a few interest rate hikes in 2022 that will benefit savers, and hopefully we'll start to see some offers from banks come down the road with better rates of interest than we've seen in a good long time. So we had dinner with my stepson and his wife, and we were talking about Hawaii, and so you're building memories that are going to last a really, really long time. 
On to Lori's second question. It's about her HSA dollars in the new year. She'll be eligible to save. She writes, when saving receipts for medical expenses to eventually get reimbursed from her HSA, which is her health savings account, by the way, for those people who don't have them, do I need to save the receipts for my HSA contribution amount or my HSA balance if I've invested those dollars? For example, if I only contributed $8,000 to an HSA, do I save receipts for those $8,000 or say the $15,000 the money will have grown to once invested? Thanks so much for all you do. Meredith, you want to take that? Sure. Essentially, with the HSA, you take the tax deduction when you contribute to the savings account. And your bank or where, or your company, wherever you keep that HSA, they're going to keep track of those contributions for you, and you're going to get a tax form that documents that for you, which is fantastic. With regards to the receipts, you only need to worry about the receipts once you start spending that money. So it is up to the full amount, including the growth. So if you spend every dollar that goes in and every bit of growth that comes in, um, then you do want to save those receipts to protect you in the event of an audit. And you want to save those receipts for years. I mean, the best thing, the like magic of an HSA is that if you want to leave that money in your account to just grow and grow and grow for years, you can do that. And then you can take receipts from 2021. And when you pull the money out in 2040, you can use those receipts to bingo them against that money that you're withdrawing. In other words, you can use today's expenses to support the money that you're withdrawing. And it makes a difference because if you're withdrawing for medical expenses, there is no more tax. You won't pay taxes. But if you are withdrawing at that point to use the money for something else, you will pay taxes unless you've got old medical receipts to support those withdrawals. So just save those medical receipts forever. I know it can get nasty. I know it can get overwhelming. Put them in a computer file, scan them in, keep a running tally of how much you have by year, and it will become really, really profitable down the road. All right, the next question comes to us from Charity. She writes, hi, Jean. My husband and I both worked in the hospitality industry at the start of COVID, and perhaps this is no surprise, but we both have new jobs now. I'm in retail, and he's trying to make a go of it in the art world, which is his first love. We said that 2021 would be our year to get back on track with our finances and start saving for retirement, but that didn't happen. Now we're saying 2022 will be our year, but with him hardly bringing in any income and there's no sign of that changing soon, I'm nervous that we'll just keep kicking the can down the road and find ourselves at 35 without a penny saved. We're 27 and 28 now, so still young, but neither of us have ever had an employer-sponsored retirement account, and I don't expect to have one anytime soon. The only thing I know for sure is that I need to open an IRA, which was advice from my father. Is he right? What else should I do in 2022 to ensure I can actually enjoy my retirement and not be stuck living paycheck to paycheck forever? Thank you for all you do to elevate women, particularly the voices of women of color. 
Thanks for writing, Charity. Such a good question with so many people leaving jobs for such a variety of reasons in 2021. Meredith, you want to start and I'll chime in? Yeah, I'll start by saying your dad offers some good advice. It's great to have somebody that you can bounce these things off of. I'll also say that there's a bit of a psychological win um, that you can get by just getting started. For example, Fidelity and many others have no account minimum. So even if it's only $20 or $50 a month to start, it can feel really good to see your progress over time. Of course, you want to weigh your retirement contribution goals against other goals, like do you have high interest debt to pay off? But thinking longer term shows you're already ahead of it, and taking smaller steps now will really feel like a win, especially when you look back 5 or 10 or 20 years down the road. And regarding your husband's dreams, it's really great that you're supporting his aspirations to make it in the art world. And it can be really hard when it feels like others are kind of ahead of you or doing more than you. But it you've got to accept that everyone's path is different and you're doing a great job of figuring out how to tackle what's within your control. One other thing I'll mention is related to our 2022 resolution study is that among people aged 35 years or younger, 62% plan to increase their retirement contribution in the year ahead, which is a far higher level than older Americans. So really kudos to not only you, but uh, a, a lot of other younger people who are really just getting started. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I would point out, look, if you can afford to make more than your IRA contribution, your husband is eligible for a spousal IRA. And basically that's just, if you've got a spouse in the workforce, you don't have the income to support an IRA on your own, you qualify based on your spouse's income and they can make the same $6,000 a year contribution that you can or up to $6,000, whatever you find that you can afford. The other thing that I might do to just assuage your nerves a little bit is to set a date at some point in the future that you can agree on with your husband where you look at these choices and you look at how much income you're both bringing in at that point and whether it's sustainable to put you on a track that you want to be on for retirement. Maybe you decide, let's do this full bore for two years. And then let's take a look at where we are and if he needs to pick up a side gig, for example, to support the art that he wants to be doing, but perhaps hasn't proven as profitable as it needs to be. And I'm thinking about my younger brother, Dave, who I've talked about on the podcast before. Dave is 51 years old and he is a full-time musician, but he's only a full-time musician as of like the last five years. He worked a regular job with flexible hours because he did it really well and so the company was willing to work with him, but he worked a regular job for a number of years in order to support his ability to go on tour when he wanted to go on tour and to do sessions when he wanted to do sessions. And I just think for you as the primary breadwinner right now, knowing that that kind of conversation may be happening down the pike, it might take a little bit of the pressure off. 
I think having those conversations and just getting on the same page is really key, not only with our resolution study, but our couples and money study has shown that the importance of having that conversation and setting goals really does make a big difference. Because if you don't, you know, now that I'm itching up on your brother's age, you can see how resentment can build. So I think the most important thing is that you make sure that you're really aligned and on the same page on it and that you truly in your heart want to support, you know, the the path that each of you are on and that you rally around what goals you have together because you can't do everything when you're working on a budget and so you have to make sure you're aligned on your priorities. I don't want to say it doesn't matter but it almost doesn't matter what your priorities are because you'll be working together and chipping away at it rather than feeling like you're rudderless at sea and not sure where you're going. And it doesn't matter societally what your priorities are, right? They're your priorities. It's personal. So you get to choose. You know, in my mid-20s, I got laid off as the company I worked at started to really struggle. And I remember going to my high school reunion and just feeling like I was so behind everybody. And I think that as you get older, you start to realize that there is no ahead and no behind and that everybody is on their own path. But it's hard because you watch someone buy this huge house and you wonder, how the heck did they afford that? Or drive some fancy car that's twice as much as your car. And it really is important to not be comparing yourself to others and, and do be true to yourself. Do what's right for you and your, your spouse and your family. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hey, everybody, it's Jean. If you want to continue unlocking your potential, then you should also check out Think Fast, Talk Smart, produced by our friends at Stanford Graduate School of Business. Think Fast, Talk Smart is the Webby Award-winning best business podcast that received nearly 50 million downloads. It's the number one career podcast in 95 countries, so you know it's worth your time. Each week, host and Stanford lecturer Matt Abraham sits down with experts to discuss the best tips to hone and develop your communication skills from making small talk that leaves a big impression to keeping your nerves in check while speaking to being more persuasive. Whether you're working on your elevator pitch or planning an important meeting, strong communication skills are critical to business. All that and so much more is available on Think Fast, Talk Smart. Listen every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. Our next question comes to us from a member of our private Facebook group. Hi, Jean. She writes, I work as a 1099 contract employee working part-time for a very large online health information company. I've been there for four years. They don't do annual reviews with their contractors, so I'm wondering when and how to ask for a raise. I'm thinking about asking in the new year, but maybe asking at the very end of the year is better. And should I mention that I've been there four years without a raise? I should mention there is a brand new manager in my department who doesn't know my background. Any suggestions would be greatly appreciated. Thanks so much. Boy, you know, this is such a common situation now with the rise of the contractor economy. What do you think in terms of asking, like the timing of the ask? 
Yeah, I think you don't have to wait for sort of a formal ask from the manager. Um, you got to grab the reins of this and set up a conversation, say, hey, I'd like to talk. And because you're dealing with a new manager, you will want to come to the discussion armed with a summary of your work, some of your background. They may not even, I've inherited employees and I, I was looking them up on LinkedIn because I wasn't given a resume. So, you know, it doesn't hurt to kind of put that on the table and then highlight some key deliverables that you've done for the company. I'll also mention it, it can really pay off if you do some market research to understand what are comparable roles paying. You can look at job listings, you can look at different websites, and just do some basic research. And then lastly, remember that you need to know your worth and what you bring to the table. Most companies want you to stay, and they want to retain you over the long term. And so they're going to work with you to create a win-win where you'll be happy to stay over the long term. And let me just also point out, you are in a growth industry in a tight labor market. If you don't get what you want when you ask, go looking. And then if you really want to stay at the company, bring that offer to the table and ask again, knowing that you have the opportunity to leave for more money if it doesn't go your way. Sometimes we hear stories about managers who will only budge so far. But if you know that you're valued and you know that you'll be difficult to replace, and my bet is right now you would be incredibly difficult to replace, especially because you've got a lot more corporate knowledge and history than your manager does, you've got a lot of power and you shouldn't be afraid to use it. Yeah. Two other quick tips. Any move you make will increase the odds of your getting a pay raise more than doing nothing. It's in the category of doesn't hurt to ask. And don't be afraid to wait out that long pause. State your case and then pause and give them a chance to process because they may not have been prepared for it or they may not know the company policy or they may not know what the market rate is. And so Take a deep breath, wait out the uncomfortable moment, and don't let the fear of the unknown hold you back. And lastly, I'll just say that women are less likely to negotiate than men, and advocating for yourself is important. So make sure that you do it and do it smartly. Absolutely. I love that. I love the advice to wait out the pause because the pause is so hard. The pause is just deadly. But if you can hold your tongue, then you retain your power. Our next question, Meredith, comes to us from Kate, and she writes, For the last couple of years post-COVID, I've been hearing a lot about how people have been able to save more due to working from home and not taking vacations, etc. But every time I read something like that, I feel there is just a shocking lack of perspective on what some people in the entertainment and hospitality industries have been through. My girlfriend is in entertainment, I'm in hospitality, and we've really been struggling. In August of this year, we started getting back on our feet and we're looking to 2022 to be our year to take some big girl steps with our money. I have a 401k through my work for the first time and I'm contributing as much as I can in order to get the match but my girlfriend doesn't have an employer-sponsored plan. She does, however, have access to an HSA, and I've heard that those can be used for retirement savings, and I do not understand that at all. Can you explain? Also, we burned through our emergency fund over the last couple of years, and the only reason we're afloat now is thanks to generous parents. What are your best tips for bulking that fund back up again? Now that I'm focused on retirement, I feel like it's pretty daunting to be trying to pay my student loan bill, my rent, my 401k, and get my emergency fund where it needs to be every single month. So 
where do I start to make sure 2022 goes in the right direction? Let me just dive in with the HSA portion of the question because we did talk about this a little bit earlier, Kate, but I don't think we talked about why it works as a retirement plan. So the deal with HSAs is that you are able to make a contribution each year for singles, it's between three and $4,000. And if you don't use the money, if you instead pay for your healthcare expenses out of pocket, you can just invest the money in that account and let it grow very similar to the money in an IRA or a 401k. And as it grows for years and you add to it every single year, it becomes for many people a supplemental retirement account, but it can become a primary account if you want. Her other choice though, is to just open an IRA. She is eligible to open an IRA or a Roth IRA and to make contributions to it. And in my opinion, they should be automatic contributions because that's insurance that your contributions will actually happen. And then if she wants to leave her HSA for healthcare needs, she has the opportunity to do that, or she can save in both accounts for retirement. Meredith, when it comes to all of these competing priorities, the emergency fund and the 401k and the student loan bill and the rent, how do you balance? Yeah, I, as you were reading the question, I just was thinking, oh, they're putting so much pressure on themselves. You know, you've been through a lot and you're doing a great job that you're even asking these questions. And I do want to acknowledge that a lot of times there's no shortage of advice on max out this, max out this, save this, don't do this. And it can make you feel like, gosh, I'm never going to be able to do all of this. And the reality is, is you don't have to do it all at once. You really have to take things one step at a time. You're smart to make sure you're contributing up to the match in your 401k. And you'll want to work on rebuilding that emergency fund so that unexpected expenses don't derail all of your hard work. But otherwise, I think the most important thing is focus on where you want to go and the road ahead and not on what was lost or what could have been, because that can really create this feeling of doom and gloom. And the reality is, is that, you know, when we surveyed people for our 2022 resolution study, the simple act of making a resolution can have a transformative effect. So taking that time to assess your priorities, getting on the same page, and people who do make goals and set resolutions do end up further along um, when they look back a year down the road. So pick a target. It doesn't have to be all the targets at once and just tackle things one step at a time. I love that. That's fantastic advice. And just as far as that student loan bill is concerned, yes, the hiatus on student loan payments is going to end in February. And so for a lot of people, this was a nice breath of relief that is going to come to an end. But if your student loan payment is unaffordable and it's a federal loan, now is the time to look at income-based repayment. Now's the time to see if going on IBR would make life easier, even if it doesn't last forever, even if you go on IBR for a couple of years until you build your income back up again, and then you can start making payments that will get you on a regular cycle and out of these loans within about a decade. But for now, if you need to soft pedal those payments in order to do these other important things, I think that that's okay. 
Meredith, thank you so much for being with us again. I love talking to you. I think you make a lot of sense. Likewise, Jean. (laughs) And for everybody else, thanks for joining me and Meredith today on Her Money. Thanks to all our listeners for your great questions. We are all looking forward to getting 2022 off to the best start that we can. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk soon. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.